Good afternoon. This is Dr. Sean Canone, and welcome to this week's podcast episode. This week, we're going to talk about litigation, and this may be a several-week series, but I wanted to begin today by just looking at an overview of long-term care litigation. Now, most of you know that litigation is a fairly common thing in the long-term care, post-acute care setting. Most long-term care litigation is filed as wrongful death, which means that most long-term care litigation is not coming from the patient who we cared for, but rather either a surviving spouse or, more commonly, the children. Actually, it's about two-thirds of long-term care litigation is filed by the children of a deceased parent. So it becomes very important for us to not only be actively involved with the care of the actual patient, but also to be engaged with the family. Now, the intent of this podcast episode is to help us identify those challenging patients and families who tend to be more litigious and to help the clinician manage these patients and families in a way that improves clinical outcomes and reduces litigation risk. Well, let's begin by just looking at the long-term care medical legal climate in general. It's important to know that the peak of long-term care litigation came in the early to mid-2000s, and at that time, if you can believe it, physicians were actually having a very difficult time getting malpractice coverage if they practiced in a nursing home setting. This was especially true in Northeast Ohio, in Florida, Texas, New York, but things have gotten a little better since then. Many nursing homes were facing so much litigation back uh, during the early 2000s that they decided to go bare and carry no liability coverage at all, thinking that would be a deterrent to frivolous lawsuits. And many of the lawsuits were frivolous in nature. In many ways, the attorney's became ambulance chasers, setting their sights on an environment where the majority of patient care ended in death. And this happens quite a bit in nursing homes, as you know. And as the medical complexity of patients was climbing and the support systems, families, caregivers became more geographically dispersed in the United States and the massive rise of dementia came with the aging population, the need for nursing home placement logically followed. And nursing homes were, and they continue to be, a place where many aged adults spend the last months and years of life. So there's a lot of clinical decompensation and death in this setting. In the early 2000s, long-term care litigation led to plaintiff compensations of approximately $2.3 billion per year, but only 8% of claims reached trial. And when they did reach trial, about 50% of the time, the verdict would go to the plaintiff. So there was a tremendous amount of reluctance on the part of defendants to actually take these cases all the way to court. And as a result, the plaintiffs received compensation in about 88% of malpractice claims, the vast majority of which were settled out of court for smaller amounts. Most of these lawsuits were against the nursing home, But over time, more and more would involve the medical director, attending physician, and other providers or clinicians. And today, I would say we're not in a state of malpractice crisis in long-term care, but the risk of litigation is still very high because we have an even higher clinical complexity now, and there's still a very high likelihood of clinical decompensation and death in our population. So what causes all this litigation? Let's just take a few minutes to think about litigation triggers. And generally, the most common causes of litigation in nursing homes historically has been, number one, falls and fractures, which accounts for about 70% of all nursing home litigation. Number two is wounds. 
And number three, elopement. That's leaving the facility unattended. Usually that does not end well, especially for patients with cognitive impairment. But there are many, many causes of litigation in the nursing home setting, but these three tend to be near the top. These cases are typically filed as wrongful death cases. However, the litigation tends to go back to a point in time where the patient experienced a sudden change in clinical status from which the cascade of clinical decline ensued. So although the cases are wrongful death, they're really about the fall and the hip fracture that occurred months before the death that seemingly triggered the clinical decline and eventual death of the patient. Wrongful death cases typically have a statute of limitations of two years. That means that from the point of death, the plaintiff has two years to decide if they want to bring litigation against the healthcare provider or entity. By the time these cases finally make it through discovery and depositions and possibly to trial, it could be many years from the incident in question. And in future episodes, we'll take a deeper look at the number one cause of nursing home litigation, falls and fractures. But for today, let's focus in on the patient and the family and look for some warning signs of litigiousness and some ways that we might address this. We begin with the underlying cause of most long-term care litigation. So let's start there. We mentioned that falls and fractures are the number one cause of litigation, but there is actually an underlying cause, a kind of a current that runs under all long-term care litigation, it seems, whether it's related to wounds or elopement or sepsis or whatever the issue might be. The motivation for most long-term care litigation is unmet expectations. Now, each of those words is really important to understand So the word unmet really means there was something that was lacking, some good or service that should have been provided that wasn't. Something wasn't met. In long-term care litigation, the header over all cases is generally abuse and neglect. In the federal nursing home regulations, they define abuse and neglect on the very first page of the more than 700 pages of regulations that govern nursing homes. So this is a very important principle to understand. Abuse is defined as the willful infliction of injury, unreasonable confinement, intimidation, or punishment with resulting physical harm, pain, or mental anguish. And here's the key, and you're going to hear this phrase for both abuse and neglect that really kind of sets the framework for our discussion. Abuse includes the deprivation of goods or services that are necessary to attain or maintain physical, mental, and psychosocial well-being. The definition of neglect is very similar. It's the failure of the facility, its employees, or service providers to provide goods and services to a resident that are necessary to avoid physical harm, pain, mental anguish, or emotional distress. So both are very similar in wording, And none of us would probably disagree with these definitions. The problem is that they seem to imply that there is a set of goods and services that if provided for the resident or the patient, will allow them to keep their current level of physical, mental, and psychosocial well-being or help them attain well-being in these areas. And if these goods and services are provided, they will avoid all physical harm, pain, mental anguish, and emotional distress. In other words, these definitions can get turned around and twisted very easily to imply that if there's a decline physically, mentally, or psychosocially with a patient, if there's any physical harm, pain, or distress that occurs, 
then there may very well have been some good or service that was lacking. Therefore, there must have been some form of abuse or neglect. So you begin with a mentality that is very much guilty until proven innocent. And many families see the fall or the wound or the sepsis or the death as the proof that abuse and neglect was present. So this is the unmet part of my definition, and next is expectations. And really, expectations can come in two forms, realistic and unrealistic. For unmet realistic expectations, there is a cause for concern, and there should be some inquiry into what happened in a particular situation. For unmet unrealistic expectations, the issue is that the expectation was not grounded in reality. It was not realistic. So today, please hear me clearly. There are appropriate contexts for litigation, but there is some subset of overall nursing home litigation that stems from unrealistic expectations. And where do these unrealistic expectations come from? Well, there are typically three sources. Number one, they can come from healthcare providers themselves. They come in the form of things like good prognosis, 24-7 nursing care, falls prevention plans. This kind of language that we use in healthcare, whether it's at a hospital or an individual provider or the long-term care facility, can really start to create unrealistic expectations about the condition of a patient. Number two, it can come from the patient or the family themselves. Their understanding of their condition is not realistic in terms of prognosis or the stage of their disease, or how it may progress, or just the complexity of their overall illness. And three, it can come from outside entities, from advocacy groups, from lawyers, from family, friends, or even ER physicians. And so we have to be very careful here about the expectations that families and patients have when we care for them. So how do we address the issue of unrealistic expectations? Before we ever get to the specifics regarding reducing the risk of certain clinical outcomes like falls or fractures or wounds or elopement or sepsis or even death, we must begin with expectations. Healthcare professionals must improve in a few ways. First, don't overpromise and underdeliver. That's the number one rule of business, they say, to under-promise and over-deliver, and I think that's something that we should think about in healthcare as well, because in healthcare, there is almost always a sense of under-delivering on expectations. We have small wins in our battles in nursing homes along the way as we palliate symptoms and improve quality of life, but invariably, we tend to lose the war to complex medical illnesses and advanced age. So continue to deliver great care for patients. Do the best that we can in that arena, but focus increased energy on reducing healthcare promises. The second thing, regularly discuss prognosis. It's okay that prognostication is not a perfect science, but in my experience, it's better to underestimate than to overestimate on this. We can be honest and give our thoughts about how their conditions will likely progress and what typical life expectancies look like. And when a patient is aged and has multiple chronic end-stage 
disease processes, we have to have these conversations. We should talk to them about what lies ahead, how they can best prepare for that. And if they prove us wrong and live longer and healthier than expected, they'll probably rub it in in a playful way and say that they proved you wrong, but that's a good thing. On the flip side, when they deteriorate, they decompensate, they will have heard it from you. You have been the source of truth, the voice that has tried to help them prepare for those times, and you will have helped them. At the same time, you're doing the work of making their expectations more realistic. And one more thing with regard to prognosis. Many clinicians are afraid to prognosticate, but there's one thing that makes it much easier to discuss, and that's getting in the habit of discussing short-term and long-term prognosis. For example, a patient goes to the hospital after a hip fracture, comes back to the skilled nursing facility for therapy, and is told by the surgeon at the hospital that this patient had a good prognosis. The surgery went really well. The hip will actually be stronger than what you had before. And in maybe four to six weeks after rehab, you should be up and around without any difficulty. Well, you can gently acknowledge the sentiment of the surgeon, but reorient the patient and the family to the real situation. The reason for the fall may not be something that can be eliminated, so future falls could occur. We don't have the ability to restrain people against their wishes, either chemically or physically, so falls can happen. We can't monitor patients at all times, one-on-one, so there may be times when they're unattended. Even if we were to use alarms, there's a chance that alarm sounding would only be an indication that their loved one has already fallen. The statistics show that half of the elderly die within one year of a hip fracture, regardless of how well the surgery went. It's a sign, a signal of trouble to come. And we're not trying to be morbid or crush people's hopes. We have to stop thinking like that. We're trying to give people a realistic view of their condition and the capabilities of healthcare, and not everything can be fixed or accounted for. Next, communication. The big takeaway from this introduction to long-term care litigation is that communication is absolutely key. Taking the time to talk with patients and their families is the best way to reduce the likelihood of litigation because questions are answered, information is given, trust is built, so they begin to take note of the situation and give credence to the things that you say. Now, finally, uh, we must come to terms with the fact that there's no set of good or services that we can provide that will allow elderly patients with massive numbers of chronic comorbidities to attain and maintain physical, mental, and psychosocial well-being. I completely get what the regulations are speaking to and the failure to provide a good or service, which then directly harms the patient in these ways, would be the wrong thing to do. But most of us are in healthcare to help people and to heal people, but we need to reorient our thinking to how we define well-being. There are patients who will decline physically, mentally, psychosocially, just look at dementia, but their well-being can remain intact. They may fall and fracture. They may end up in end-stage COPD, having tremendous difficulty breathing. They may have no cardiac output left from their congestive heart failure. They may be wasting away from not wanting to eat or drink. They may have wounds on their body. They may even die. In some ways, we have to allow for well-being 
to sit independent of what is happening physically, mentally, and psychosocially. When you think about palliative care and hospice care, you don't typically think of good clinical outcomes in the traditional sense. But there's a well-being that can be attained even at end of life, when a patient's not doing well at all physically, mentally, or psychosocially. So focus on well-being. Find out how the patient or family define that and make that your goal of care. Next, as hinted above, there is value in advanced care planning discussions. Much of the focus of ACP is on understanding the perspective of the patient or the family. Hearing from them allows us to get a better feel for what in their thinking is realistic and what is not. It allows us to have those conversations earlier to educate and to empower them to define well-being and the steps that they want to take to make that a reality. There's one way to avoid all long-term care litigation. You ready for it? Just stop practicing. If we don't practice in nursing homes, we won't get sued for practicing in nursing homes, but that is not the answer. In my career, it's been a joy to care for patients and their families in this setting at this very crucial time in life. For the most part, this population has been largely forgotten. And we have the ability and the privilege of treating them with dignity and respect and delivering high-quality health care. We get to be there when they are facing some of the toughest decisions they'll ever make in their life. And the more we're willing to engage in that process, communicate with our patients and their families, say, I don't know, promote realistic expectations, the more likely we are to avoid confrontational litigation in the future. We'll continue this conversation in our next podcast and look at some specific ways to identify red flags in your interactions with patients and families. Until then, keep up the good work and have a great week.